Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Talking to the, to the, to the anti-hunters, I don't really talk to the anti-hunters. Yep. I talk to the people that are middle of the road. And when I talk to them, I just explain to them, you know, about conservation efforts and about the fact that we all love these animals just as much as you do, probably more. Welcome to the National Wildlife Federation Outdoors Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Youngdike. I'm here at the Outdoor Writers Association of America Conference in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I cannot come to Little Rock without reaching out to my friend Tim Ensley, um, who, who has multiple roles and wears multiple hats <laughs> within the outdoors uh, industry and, and lives nearby. And he's just a really interesting person that I want to introduce uh, listeners to um, because I, I think that he has some some really great takes on the hunting industry, hunting and fishing, and how we present ourselves to the public. Um, Tim uh, has had a long career in, in rodeo, um, which kind of I think is why I, I first wanted to reach out to him, just because I, I dabbled in that in high school. He was actually a pro, so that's like you know somebody that played JV basketball. Say <laughs> that something in common with Michael Jordan, but um, it, it's really, really fun to have him here. Um, and so, before I prattle on any longer, I will introduce you to Tim. Uh, Tim Edsley, uh, thanks for joining the National Wildlife Federation Outdoors Podcast. Absolutely, glad um, to be here. So, so Tim, um, I, I met you through uh, at the Archery Trade Association. You were up on stage. Um, emceeing the Badlands Film Fest, which which is a really cool um, festival of of hunting related films that showed um, at the Archery Trade Association show. Um, how how did you get into that role? Could you tell me a little bit about your background and how you got into hunting and into that that role to begin with? Uh, the role with the Badlands Film Festival basically just came about as. Um you know, I don't know. I've been I've been affiliated with Badlands for about ten years, and um, 
the film festival started the first year they had the film festival I actually had a film in the film festival and uh, that was the first film I'd ever created I knew nothing about filmmaking and I spent 21 days chasing one deer in Kansas right, by myself um, I filmed it all I didn't I didn't really know what I was doing I had a camera and a GoPro and I had no idea really what to film or how to film I just kept the camera rolling like from the time I got up in the morning until the time I went to bed at night there was a camera rolling and I came back with the footage and I had a buddy that just graduated from film school and at the time I just retired from rodeo I didn't really know what I was going to do and I bought this camera just kind of on a whim not wanting to start any kind of a career or anything I just thought eh, it'd be kind of cool if I filmed this trying to kill this buck in Kansas yeah and um my buddy just graduated film school uh, from Henderson State University here in Arkansas. Okay. And he came over and he was like, dude, you should make a film out of this. And I'm like, okay, how do we do that? <laughs> and um, he literally brought a laptop over. We sat in my living room floor and we edited up a film called 21 Days in November. And I did voiceover. It was funny doing voiceover because we had no gear. Like literally we had, I did the voiceover into the camera <laughs> um, on the road mic. And then we put the voiceover over the film, but you know we had we had no voiceover equipment. That was it. I literally just we took the road mic and put it on an arrow, and I held it up. We <laughs> taped it to an arrow, and I held it up to my mouth, just like a okay. mic, no filter, nothing. Um, I didn't end up killing that buck. I just chased him for 21 days, and we made the film, put it in the first ever Badlands Film Festival. And it was the second highest voted film for the film festival. And we lost by like 17 votes at the time. We had a weird voting system. And um, we, so you, we knew exactly how many votes everybody had. So we lost by 17 votes. And I was like, man, this is kind of cool. My friend ended up, that edited the film for me, Blaine, he ended up getting a job at the film festival full time okay. for an outdoor production company. And uh, he still works there. He's been working there ever since as a full-time outdoor film producer. That's what he does. And um, from that, my affiliation with Badlands just grew. Okay. And, um, you know, as, as time went on, uh, the film festival grew and grew and grew. And, you know, that first year we had about 150 people in a room. It was really loud. You couldn't hardly hear the films. Um, it was just, a, you know, we were trying really hard. Blake was trying really hard. Badlands was trying really hard to put together something that was going to grow and be, you know, super influential in the industry, and showcase some great filmmakers and promote the outdoors. And now, you know, last year we had like three thousand people at yeah. the film festival, and the venue's a lot bigger. And a few years ago, Blake came up and asked me. He said, "Man, like, I really need some help in seeing this thing." and he said, you seem to like to talk a lot. <laughs> well, you, so, you, were, <laughs> you, you were a natural. Yeah. It's, it's been a couple of years since I've been to Archery Trade Association, uh, to ATA show, and hope, hopefully I'll fix that this year. Yeah. Um, but, but you were just a natural up there, and, and I was kind of there hanging out with uh, the Born and Race crew who, mm -hmm. who won there. And um, my friend Ben Steiger had a uh, film in there yeah. at the time, too. Ben and I did train to hunt in Pennsylvania a couple times, and uh, that was exciting to see. Um, and, and since then, we've, we've just talked uh, a few times just about conservation and, and how hunting is, is portrayed. Um, you know, you talk about doing that film and, and filming that. How, how did you get into hunting and fishing to begin with? Because, 
you you didn't always do that growing up. You you were you were a rodeo man first. So yeah. tell tell me about that. Yeah. So um, I had a 27 year career as a professional rodeo cowboy. Before that, you know, I mean, uh, uh, rodeo. I lived in a group in Texas. Okay. Uh, my dad is uh, a Hall of Fame cowboy. My dad was one of the top professional rodeo announcers in the in the world and announced every major rodeo. So I grew up rodeo. My dad didn't hunt. He didn't fish. I mean, we we grew up rodeo. And um, so it wasn't until later in life, actually, when I met my wife. Okay. Um, her family hunted. And, like, it was a big deal. And here I was, this rodeo guy, and I really didn't understand it. So it was, uh, I didn't really understand the, the hunting deal and why it was such a big deal. Um, so... Uh, I just, to be honest with you, the first few years, like I just, it just didn't interest me at all. And then I had a buddy that was rodeoing with me that loved to bow hunt. And he talked about it all the time. And when we were in, gone on the road rodeoing, like he was always bringing these bow hunting magazines and stuff. And he'd bring mm-hmm. his bow and shoot, like when we were on the, when we were traveling, he'd bring his bow and shoot a target, you know, around the trailer during the day. And, and I thought, it's kind of cool, you know. So one day we went to an archery shop and we, he had to go get something done to his bow. And so I was sitting there and to be honest with you, I was watching some of the, it was the guy that was running the archery shop had like some of the first Drew videos, the very first ones. Oh yeah. Like from the old days, like when they were still shooting 130 <laughs> inch deer. <Yeah>. You know? <laughs> Sorry, Drew's, if you're listening, like those were my favorite videos. Um, uh, but, uh, on VHS bro. Yeah. On VHS. <laughs> so they were on VHS and, and I remember watching and they were talking about, how they set up stands and certain winds and, and finding food sources and saddles and funnels. And I'm like, man, like, now this is kind of interesting because this is more of a challenge. This seems like a chess, chess game to me. And um, so I started watching that video and I, I became intrigued with it. And I thought, now this is something, it's not a slam dunk. It's archery hunting. It's not a slam dunk. You, you, you really, you know, the only hunting I'd ever really known was what a lot of people that don't hunt know mm-hmm. is, you know, either guys sitting around in a truck waiting on a deer to cross the road and shoot it, or they sit in a box blind over a feeder. And that's the only hunting I'd known. So I didn't know this whole other side of hunting, which was archery hunting. And there was a lot of preparation that went into it. Uh, it intrigued me. I bought a bow that day. I bought a fully really? rigged up bow that day before I walked out of there. Had no idea how to shoot it. Came home, buddy of mine here, you know, started teaching me a little bit about how to shoot the bow. So then I was the guy that was had the bow with him at all the rodeos. Yeah. So like during the day, now I'm out there <laughs> shooting my bow. And that first deer season, I had I had nowhere to hunt. Uh, so another guy that's a good friend of mine that rodeos locally around here, um, they had some property on the on the river, and they hunted and but they only rifle hunted. And I said, hey, I'm really wanting to bow hunt, but I don't have anywhere to hunt. He goes, oh man, you can come bow hunt our place. So I started reading every magazine I could read. Like I subscribed to every bow hunting magazine there was. Like it didn't matter what it was. And then I I bought every book just on white-tailed deer. Okay. Like it didn't, it wasn't about hunting. It was about white-tailed deer. Like I, I bought like the, the Time Life books. Yep. So I bought like the Time Life books. It's on, about like their, their behavior as a species. Yes, because yep. I felt like I was going to approach it the same way I did with rodeo. I mean, I wanted to know everything about it. I wanted to know why deer 
would bed where they would bed, while they would feed where they would feed, while they would travel where they would travel, uh, uh, different food sources for different years. I, I knew nothing. Like I'm, I'm a blank slate. Like I don't know anything about hunting. I had no preconceived notions of hunting. Like no one showed me. I just had, I learned it straight up from Drew videos and watching every, reading every magazine I could read and reading every book I could read. So I took what I'd learned from those books. I bought a, a ladder stand and I went out there and found a spot that looked like it was the perfect scenario. It was a little strip of timber that had a bunch of hardwood, white oak acorns, and it was headed toward the river and there was bedding right here. To, to one side of it. So it's like, I'm saying, I'm saying right here, like people on the podcast can see me, but like there was bedding to the <laughs> south, there was river to the north, and there was white oak acorn trees in the middle. And I said, this is it. Yep. And I hang it, and so I hang my ladder stand, and uh, it's October before I ever get to hunt. It's late October, like October 24th or 5th. Okay. So these bucks are already kind of starting to rut. I'm, and I'd been reading about rut behavior and all this stuff, you know, so I find these scrapes right there where I hang the stand. And I'm like, oh man, so I've got the perfect scenario. I've got white oak acorns falling, I've got bedding area, and I've got scrapes right here. So I go in there and I doctor up the scrapes with some dorsal gland scent. I get in the stand, the wind's blowing in my face. Four o'clock the first afternoon, I blow a grunt call about three times. About 30 minutes later, 126 and eight inch eight point steps in the scrape, <laughs> and I shoot him with my bow. <laughs> and he goes 30 yards and, and crashes. So it was textbook. It was textbook. But here's the thing that intrigued me was it was the preparation that was involved. Even though I, I killed my first deer ever with a bow, and it was a Pope and Young buck mm-hmm. on you know private land that wasn't managed. Okay. Um, I had no feed out. Like a, this is a, this is a bait state. Arkansas is a bait state. Okay. I used natural food, so I had the white oak acorns. Yep. So I used natural food, no bait. The deer came to that came to that scrape. I shot him. It was almost like everything I had read in pre, in, in preparation for this was exactly right. And then I shot that buck, and I'm not going to tell her about like what I I wanted to get down immediately. Right. Which. I'd already known, don't get down immediately. Like I'm forcing myself to stay up. So I stay up 15 minutes probably and I get, but I, I saw the deer crash, but I'm not sure. I don't know, I, I don't know if he's alive or not. So I climb down finally and I go around there and sure enough there he is. And uh, I was just so ecstatic. My, my buddy came around there and picked me up in the Jeep because no cell phones then, you know I mean? You'd call somebody, like he right. just had a certain time. When, to if you don't mind me, when was this? How long ago? Man, it was in the nineties. So, okay. Yeah, I can't. I can't remember exactly. Late, mid to late nineties. Okay. So, yeah. So it's, you know, it's, I've been I've been hunting for over twenty years. You know. Yep. So, um, but it was. Uh, I just remember, I sat there and I looked at that buck and I was, and it, and it hit me right then because I I didn't grow up hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, it hit me right then like that. We have. Uh, an immense responsibility, um, not only to, um, and I don't like the word harvest. I don't say harvest. I say kill because that's when, what we do. Yep. When I say kill, because I don't want to cheapen the experience. Yep. I mean, um, I want to. I want to know that I have that 
that power to take make something's heart stop beating and that has to be a serious serious thing for me i mean that's just me personally yep um has you know tom mcguane has a uh a great essay in um David Peterson's collection called A Hunter's Heart, and in the in the Tom Aguilar essay, that's exactly what he says. When he grew up, his first kill, um, his dad said to him, "This is, you know, this is damn serious. You better always remember that." Mm-hmm. And yeah. when you just said that, it just reminds me of that quote. And I think for for hunters that approach it from that ethical conservation mindset, that's always something that we keep true to heart. You know. Yeah, and that was something I experienced for the first time. So, okay, uh, you know, I, there was there was this feeling of joy that was over me because I'd accomplished the goal that I set out to accomplish. Yep. But at the same time, there was this, you know, the there was this immense responsibility that came over me at that point with my first deer ever. Yep. That we have the ability to make another living thing's heart stop beating. And, you know, I, I just don't think we take that lightly. Um, so at that point, I think hunting brought, you know, even the very first hunt I ever went on, it brought like, a, I don't know, clarity, like a total, total different clarity to my mindset about hunting at that point. But I still didn't know anything about conservation. I yeah. knew nothing about conservation. Well, and, you know, fast forward, you now had that, that moment of clarity with your first hunt. You produce a video that that did very well when you actually didn't get a deer yeah you've hosted the badlands film fest where you've had the opportunity to see some of the best hunting films out there and how they're presented but then i jump back to when you tell me when you first got into it and what your perception of hunting was before mm-hmm. you saw those jewelry videos and, and and the puzzle and figuring it out what is what does that mean to you as far as how how does that perception that maybe the general public has differ from how we approach hunting? And what responsibility do we have as hunters to make sure that the perception they have is accurate to what we do? I think it's, I think in this generation, it, it starts with social media. Um, we talk about this, I talk about it a lot, that in our industry, we, we really have to learn to police ourselves. Uh, we call it doing it for the gram, you know, yeah, Instagram. Instagram. Yep. Uh, it's, you know, there's so many people out there that are trying to be Insta famous and, and it's almost like, um, we talked about this a little bit at dinner tonight. It's almost like yep. our industry sometimes rewards bad, re- bad behavior because someone might have a huge following. Just because they have a huge following does not mean that their ethics or, or values are worth following. It just means they're really good at social media, okay? That doesn't mean that they are anyone that we need to be promoting in our industry. It just means they're really good at social media. But what happens is, is in this marketplace, and I'll get, you know, I mean, we've had some conversations, you know, I don't really pull many punches, and I'm not gonna step on any toes or anything, but in this marketplace, a lot of times, you have marketing managers and different people out there that are looking, and the first thing they want to look at is how many how many IG followers you got, how many Facebook followers you got, how much how many impressions you can get, and how many eyes they feel like you can get on their product. And they don't care how you represent yourself, so long as you're not doing something you know totally stupid. Um, they're <laughs> yeah. gonna you know they're gonna use you to promote those products, and in, and in turn they promote those people. And it's 
you know, it, it's it's a marketing strategy in a lot of ways. But the thing is, is um, like I said, social media has been uh, a blessing and a curse, basically. I think to a lot of things, not just the outdoor industry, but but for the outdoor right. industry, it's definitely been a blessing and a curse because yeah. it's well. In, in sorry for interjecting, but like because you represent a few different brands that you sure. have um, long-standing relationships with. Ten years, most of them. Yep. Yeah. And and you represent those brands in a certain respectful way to to the wildlife, to the game, um, to to you know the pursuit of hunting. Sure. How how do you do that? So you make sure that when you're representing brands, you're doing it in an ethical way toward hunting, um, while still getting the I guess the followers or the attention to the brand that 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 they that they, that they, that they employ you to do. How, how do you how do you make that balance where you're still getting um, that that focus on the brand but doing it in the right way? It's I mean that's that's definitely a tough juggling act sometimes. Um, number one, I don't represent any brand that I don't believe in for, from start to finish. I mean that's why I've been with these right. brands for so long. I mean Badlands for ten years. I was with Bear Archery for nine years. I just changed archery companies this past year, and I changed the prime. And it was not easy for me to do, but it was time. There were changes happening at Bear. I didn't fit into those changes, mm-hmm. and it was time for me to go somewhere else. And to be honest with you, I, I, you know, prime was the, probably the bow I was going to go with anyway. And actually, I was fixing to buy buy a prime bow. That's where I was going. Yep. And they approached me and said, "Hey, we want you to shoot for Prime, and it's a very small group." Yep. And and I I said I'm I'm down because I believed in the bows already. I'd already shot them three years ago, and I said, "This is, you know, if I ever if I'm ever gone from Bear, I'm going to Prime." <laughs> and here I am. I'm with Prime now, and they treat me great. The bows are. I'm not, you know, trying to give an infomercial here. Well, no, but, but because yeah. you because you have a track record of representing brands that you believe in. If you if you if you tell me it's great, I believe you it's the, great. Yeah. yeah, and I'll tell everybody go shoot it. You know, go shoot it for yourself. But that's the way. I'm not going to represent a product to anybody else that I don't believe in myself. Like it's, it cannot be about the dollar. It can't be about the dollar for me. It. I mean, um, I, I got approached by a couple companies last year. They're like, you know, we're going to pay you to you know represent our product, and I'm like, you know, doesn't really fit me. And you know, I'm not fully vested in this product, and I'm not really going to go out and talk to people about it. And I think, I think that's the deal. I think if more people would, I'm not saying I'm perfect by any means, but I just feel like that it's too easy just to jump from brand to brand to brand. If you see, if you're following somebody on Instagram or you're following somebody on Facebook or you're watching their television show, and every other week. You know, they're with a different bow company, or they're with a different broadhead company, or they're with a different arrow company. How how can you believe anything they tell you? <laughs> yeah. I mean, how can you believe? Because this week they're going, man. I'm going to tell you, this broadhead is the greatest broadhead I've ever shot in my life. It's the best broadhead that's ever been made. If you're not shooting this broadhead, you're crazy. And then two weeks later, they're shooting this other brand, and they're like, wait a minute this is the best broadhead I've ever shot, you know, and and not saying you can't change your mind, but, you know, um, at some point in time, you got to look at that guy and go, or girl, and go, 
eh, are you, you know, are you really worth me listening to as far as what I want to do with my out, you know, as far as what I want to do with my outdoor gear? Um, I don't know. I think it just comes down to kind of who you want to be as a person. Growing up around rodeo and stuff, like you still kind of keep that cowboy, yeah, and cowboy values, I guess. And, and and even for the limited time that I spent in rodeo as a teenager, you learn the phrase "riding for the brand." Yeah, <laughs> and and I, I talk about that with National Wildlife Federation, and yep. um, still, you're also launching a new uh, production company as well. Yeah. Um, and well, first of all, can you tell folks the name of the new production company, and and how are you going to be able to leverage this to present? hunting in the ethical way that, that you think that it ought to be presented? Well, the new company's called Wild Horse Motion and named it Wild Horse just because that name just kind of came to me one night and I was like, uh, uh, actually I think I was watching something on Netflix and, there, and it was about wild horses and I'm like, okay. that's so cool. And I went, was it unbranded? Well, no, I've seen unbranded. Oh, right. it, it was something different. Yeah. And I thought Wild Horse, Wild Horse Motion and I thought that's the name of our company. And, um, you know, our, our goal is to create content, uh, not just for, not just for the outdoor industry. We're, we're okay. creating content for, uh, PBR. We're creating content for some of the, the, um, the bull breeders for the PBR that raised the uh, page bucket bulls that have raised, they, they've owned the last five PBR world champion bucket bulls. Um, and they breed all those bulls and bred the buck program. So we've been down there filming stuff with them. Like. I just wanted to, is basically the company was formed out of necessity for me because we were missing out on work opportunities because I was, I'm so vested in some of the companies that I work for that I've been, right. I've been tied to for years and I will never leave them. You know I mean? I tell everybody bad, Badlands wants to get rid of me. Like they're going to have to drag me out the door <laughs> holding onto their leg because such a great company and great people to, to work with. And they're like my family. You know, it's like when my dad passed away this last year, Badlands sent two big sprays to my dad's you know funeral. And that just tells you a little something about, you know, how they feel about me and how I feel mm -hmm. about them. So, Wild Horse was kind of formed out of necessity. So, because I had some other companies that approached me about doing some films with them, and um, you know, I, I couldn't, I just couldn't because of, it wasn't they were bad companies or I didn't believe in them, but I couldn't personally represent them. But we could do the films, but I just couldn't put my name on them. Right. So we we started Wild Horse. It's me and, and a buddy of mine named Cass Villa and an old rodeo buddy of mine named BJ Osborne. BJ and I've been friends for years. Um, Basically, I'm I am a purebred rodeo cowboy, and I'm horrible with money and contracts <laughs> and finances. BJ is a purebred contract money negotiating. That's what he does for a living. Um, so BJ's been one of my best friends for years. So uh, BJ came on board. He can't film anything, BJ. So when you hear him, like, <laughs> BJ's a horrible cowboy. Um, he can film for you, but don't ask him to film anything by himself because he's not going to do it. Um, and Cass, uh, Cass and I have been friends. He came to Arkansas from uh, Colorado. He came to Arkansas as a baseball player and uh, ended up just getting married and staying here. And he went to film school, and he and I became friends. We met actually at a Bass Pro event, and Cass is an outstanding editor, and he just actually in two weeks will go to work for Wild Horse full-time. So the three of us together, we're going to create some just really cool 
stuff that's a little out of the norm for the outdoor industry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're. I think I'm not even going to really explain what we're doing. It's going to be so out we're of the norm. We're just going to have to watch it. Uh, that you're just going to have to watch it. But um, it's. Um, you know, we're not necessarily going like some people go. You know, full conservation or full television style. We're yeah. going to be somewhere kind of in between to where it's a little, almost a little more skateboardy, mountain bikey, rock climbing. You know, <laughs> like, but that's the kind of stuff I watch. But, man. but you know what? You know, and you and I have, have have kind of talked about this before. Just you know, Tim and I will. We've only met each other in person maybe once or twice, but we'll call each other on the yeah. phone and just like have an hour-long conversation while I'm pacing around the, the backyard talking about where conservation and hunting needs to go. Sure. But, but you talk about other, other outdoor pursuits. You know, you're forming a company that's, that's outdoors, it's, it's rodeo, it's with a baseball player, um, mountain biking, other things. Is, it, is that where hunting needs to go? Do we need these allies? Do we need to make make outdoors broader than just hunting and fishing and kind of everybody who recreates outdoors and, and make allies of everyone? Sure. I think I think that's exactly where we need to go. Um, and I think I and I think like me coming at this from a from a fresh perspective, I didn't grow up in this. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up straight up in rodeo, um, so I didn't really grow up in the hunting industry, so I had no preconceived notions of how hunting should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was fortunate that when I got introduced to this industry, I got to meet some people like Jason Matzinger, Willie Schmidt, Jenna Waller, some people that are super conservation-minded, um, and they're also super ethical. And, you know, just, I feel like that the fact that we have all these communities that use our public lands and public lands is a big thing for me. We haven't really hit on that, but like I killed my first buck on my buddy's property. I immediately within two years started hunting public land. I've been hunting the same public Mm -hmm. land in Arkansas for over 20 years. And this year I killed my biggest buck ever in Arkansas ever. I killed it on public land, 14 days in a wall tent using a boat. That's awesome. And with my boat and I've seen your wall tent. That's a look. It's what I loved loved about seeing those pictures of that wall tent. It reminds me of where uh, my my dad and brother and cousin we set up a wall tent on public land in northern Mm -hmm. Michigan, a hundred thousand acre state forest, and uh, we're not nearly as successful actually getting deer. But that that camaraderie, that camaraderie, that family time that allows us together, we would not have that. My dad always says, "This is amazing. We have a hundred thousand acres." We couldn't afford this in a million years. Right. You know, we can barely afford anything. And, you know, for me coming out, when I, when I started getting into hunting out of college, I, I should, you know, same with you. You might beg and borrow and plead for a little spot of private land to, to hunt on. But with this public land, it's that opportunity for all. Yeah. In Arkansas, 90% of our public land is bow only. So if you're a okay. bow hunter, holy cow, man. And, and that place that I hunt... Um, it's probably one of the most famous places in Arkansas for big deer because some of the biggest deer in the state come out of that area. Um, and it, a lot of them are killed on that public land. Uh, once I started hunting public land, I just fell in love with it. And I think I fell in love with it because 
it was so untouched, you know, like all the private land around here is getting clear cut, timber's getting sold off of it, and then they're mm-hmm. coming in and planting these fast growing pines, which really do nothing for the habitat. Yeah, it's kind of deer um, deserts. Yeah, yeah, so they're growing these fast growing pines that they're going to be able to get another cutting off of in 15 years. I mean, that's the whole mm-hmm. thing with them is, is with the timber companies is they want to, you know, I'm not saying all of them are bad, I'm just saying that. You know, they're cutting this private timber or timber they own. They're cutting it down. They're putting these fast-growing pines back up so they can... And that's the business they're in. Yeah. It so, sounds great on yeah. the growth and food. Yeah. Yeah. So they're not really going in and, and replanting hardwoods. You know, they're mm-hmm. going in and planting fast-growing pines, like you said, which is, you know, basically it's only good for bedding area. Mm-hmm. But when I saw this pristine hardwood timber that was untouched and it still looked just like... You know, it probably did a hundred years ago, and there's every kind of acorn tree in there. There's all kinds of brush. There's, I mean, it's 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 exactly what you're looking for. There's so many food sources, and with us being a bait state on, and I say bait, so it, it is bait. So you can call it, you can sugarcoat it however you want. I mean, people put feeders up in there. You know, they can call it supplemental feeding or whatever they want to call it. Basically, most people around here are baiting deer. Um, and it's legal, mm-hmm. and there's nothing wrong with it if it's legal in your state. But what attracted me to the public land here is there's no baiting on public land. Okay. None. So you're straight up going in that public land, and you're hunting on your on your skills and your skill set. So to me, that's what got me into hunting because there was that challenge there. And, you know, uh, I'm not one of those guys that has to shoot a lot. And I'm one of those guys that I don't mind eating that tag, you know. I mean, yep. if I had, if I well, I you spent, made a whole film about it. Yeah, I did, and I spent 14 days on public land here in Arkansas this year. It rained. I was sick. Everything else, uh, and I finally shot that one buck. And I can tell you right now, in those 14 days, I saw exactly 12 deer in 14 days. You know, I've, I've definitely had those kind of, um, those kind of days. Um, and then and that magical weeks. experience. Oh, happens. man. When you look, and there he is, and, he, and, you, and you blow that grunt call, and he comes straight in. Yep. He comes straight into your spot. And there's no bait there. There's no, you haven't even got scent. You can't put scent wicks out or anything. I mean, there's nothing. You're, mm-hmm. He's basically, you pick the right spot. Is, is that, um, has, it, has it been like that, or is that a response? Has, is that newer in response to the outbreak of chronic wasting disease that no. you started to have in the state? Always, always been like that. You can okay. use you can use synthetic scents here. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I just I really don't put out a lot of stuff on public yep. land, just mainly because uh, you know you I don't want to leave scent wicks hanging around in trees. If I forget one, I'm going to feel bad about it. Um, I just try. It's our public land. It's everybody's land. Like I try to. You know, I try to police it myself. You yeah. know, like um, I just, I just think it's our responsibility. But uh, yeah, I think that's what kind of got me more involved into the conservation uh, yeah. public land side of it because I started getting more and more interested in our public lands in Arkansas and uh, the way our public lands, the way my public land experience started was I had some buddies that were hunting this public land and they took me for the first time. And so every year for fifteen years. The same guys, we all got together, same time every year, and we had camp on public land, and we all hunted for like five days. We took campers, yep. and we stayed in the campers, and we hunted for five or six days, and occasionally somebody would kill something, but most of the time we were just killing time. Yep. Um, but like I can remember not, like I wouldn't miss that. 
I wouldn't miss that time. And even now today, like, I've only missed one year on our public land in Arkansas. Even as busy as I get, and I have all these opportunities to go hunt all these other places, I come home every year and I hunt our public land in Arkansas. And, it, and most of the guys that I used to hunt with, like, they're all gone or they've kind of gave up hunting public land. They've got leases and kids and, you know, they've got other stuff going on. But here's Tim. I still go. But here's one of the things I started doing. You were talking about the wall tent. Yep. We used to take the camper. And problem is, is we'd come in from hunting and everybody would go in the camper. We'd turn the TV on and we'd cook something and we'd sit there and watch TV and then we'd go to bed. Well, we missed out on that experience of the campfire. And I think what got me, you know, more interested in using the wall tent was going out west and hunting with Jason Matzinger and those okay. guys. And we were hunting in the Missouri Breaks and we were hunting wall tent camps. And after I had my first wall tent camp experience, like I never wanted it to end. So I brought that wall tent back, you know, to Arkansas. So now we put up the wall tent. Um, we still have our, you know, our place where we cook right there and we cook everything outside and we have the fire going and everybody sits around the fire and shoots the bull and uh, normally everybody goes to their camper because no one wants to stay in the wall tent. <laughs> um, but, but, but they do come over now like and just yeah. hang around the fire and, um, and we all eat together and we sit around and, and shoot the bull and, and we still have that same hunting experience but I just like the wall tent because I think it just brings people more together as a you know, the whole we sat around and talk about our day rather than sitting there and watching a movie. You know, yeah. uh, a few years ago we did some pike nights. I did a film called Camp, and it was just about, uh, I guess, kind of the the fact that the family deer camps are kind of fading away. Um, I, it, I saw I saw that film at, uh, at at the first ATA show that I went to. Yeah, um, it, and and I thought it was a really moving film because. Well, it just spoke to me because it reminded me of my deer camp yeah. up in up in Michigan. Um, where, where can people see that film? Uh, you can go on Badlands on Badlands okay. YouTube channel, and it's it's on there. If you go to the playlist, yep. you can go through there and you can find Camp, but and it's on it's on there. Um, you know, it was, it was strange because like it was a hunting film, but it, but nothing was killed. Not one <laughs> not one animal was killed, and it wasn't about that. Yep. and that's the whole thing was that that film was not about killing anything. It was about a place. And um, it was about how that place turned into something different for me over the years. You know, when I first started hunting there, that place was a place where I went and I tried to hone these skills, you know, and I felt yeah. like every day, because I was watching all these videos, I felt like <laughs> every day, like this, you know, 160-inch giant was going to just walk out of the woods in front of my stand. And little did I know back then that there was no such thing as a 160-inch giant in my area. So, you know, it's like... Um, but as the years went by and I progressed, I, I feel like I progressed as a hunter and I learned more about um, conservation and ethics and just, uh, I don't know, the value of wildlife. It became something different to me. Plus yeah. the value of that camp became something different to me because it had been a camp that my, my wife's family had been a part of for, at that time, 52 years. It had been called the Hill Camp. Now, you know, we're... we're 56 or 7 years um, it had been called Hill Camp and there used to be 20 people family members in that camp now there's 4 of us and you know I'll always be I, I don't go there to shoot big deer I just don't like I don't go there to shoot deer period I spend a lot of time in the stand but 
man, I'm going to tell you, it's uh, it's just that place you go that's kind of home, and you're just relaxed. And um, I'm not, you know, I'm out not. I have no preconceived notions anymore about what camp means to me. It means, you know, opening day of rifle season, and we're all there together. Which I don't rifle hunt. I'm out there with my bow, but. Um, <laughs> Uh, opening day of rifle season no matter what at 10 o'clock we're at camp cooking breakfast yep and that's our deal and even though there's only four of us there now and there used to be 20 at this huge table that we had now there's four of us eating at that huge table but listen we still cook we still cook eggs the same we still cook the bacon the same we still have the same camp experience as we ever had um there's just less of us there and so I guess that's why that, that film meant so much to me. But the Wildlife well, Federation asked me to take it to some pike nights, and they showed it. And then um, I think we talked about this earlier. It was almost a perfect film for some of those pike nights yeah. because they had me speak after the film. And so I would get up and speak after the film, and then um, I would open it up and let people ask questions, which sometimes is a mistake. But... <laughs> Uh, what did happen was there were some people that weren't necessarily hunters and they weren't for hunting or against hunting um, every place we went we had people that were that were at these events that had bought a table and this is what always surprised me you bought a table supporting this event that we were doing this pint night which says something for the, the Wildlife Federation yep. because they weren't hunters. I mean, I don't know, really know what their affiliation was, but they were members. Okay. Well, and, and they're probably similar I mean, to us. Sure. You know, we try to bring together hunters and anglers yep. and anyone else who cares about wildlife. Yeah, and, yep. that's, and that's, exactly who these people, yep. that's exactly who these people were. So, um, a lot of the questions that I got about it was about... Um, the camp and the camp experience and not one of those people asked me about the hunting mm -hmm. they asked me about the camp and they were like it just you just made that look like such a magical place you know and they're, they're like it doesn't so it really doesn't matter to you that you go there whether you kill an animal or not i'm like it really doesn't like that's just my place to to chill like i literally go there and you know, I hang out with my wife and her dad and her cousin and, and we cook breakfast and we spend time on the stand and we're always working on something around here. It's like we're working on this place all the time like it's the grandest deer camp in the world. And in reality, you know, there's only probably been five or six bucks that are, were, were killed on that property that, that anyone else would even consider even shooting, you yep. know. Um, and, and if I went other places, you know, there would probably not be deer that I would shoot and like now I haven't shot a deer off that place in years and but I still go every year and I sit in the same stands and I watch the does and I watch the turkeys come through and, and I, I just see all this cool stuff and I get to have this camp feeling and um, and that was important to me and it was important to me to share that you know that it's not just for, for, for most of us it's not just about killing something you know it's about a heritage a tradition and that heritage there um, of my wife's family's camp like I don't ever want her to lose that place yeah. I want that because she spent a lot of Thanksgivings and birthdays and stuff at that camp with her family 
and I want it to always be there for her. So as long as we're alive and we can keep that thing going, we're always going to have the hill camp, you know? Yeah. And you, you seem to have a knack for talking with non-hunters. Yeah. And, and having them walk away from the, con- from the conversation with either a new appreciation or less um, opposition to hunting that maybe they entered the conversation with. How, how have you done that, and what can the hunting community learn from that as our numbers seem to dwindle and we're in more need of allies to keep yeah. what we do going? Um, I think it comes from me being a non-hunter myself. Um, for the most part, you're not going to change the mind of an anti-hunter. Okay, You're not going to change the mind of an anti-hunter. He's, he's, he or she is just as passionate about their position as we are about ours. So there's no point in even trying to change. He's not going to change my mind about hunting, and I'm not going to change his. So the people that we have to concentrate on are the people in the middle that don't, you know, they're not really hunters, but they don't care if you hunt. Maybe they don't understand it. Those are the people that you need to, you know, set to like, just like the people in Colorado that I met, you know, on my elk hunt. They were up there because, you know, some group told them, oh, there's hunting season started and you should go up and run all the elk off the field off the you know off the mountain before these hunters get up there and get them and after I was there for eight days and I ended up spending like four days eating dinner with these people you know I had them (laughs) at my camp you know we talked and by the time it was over with they were like man like we had no understanding of that at all and you know we talked about conservation and we talked about the fact that you know the reason these trails are up here for the most part is because of most of it is from hunters taxpayer dollars you know they yep. come from from sales tax and um once i explained all that to them and, and explained to them that we're not we're not what whatever you've been told about us is i'm not saying there's not guys out there and girls out there that are like that because there are they catch them every day poaching mm-hmm. or, or doing stupid stuff um but we're not all that way. We and more love, and more they're catching them because they're posting that stuff on Instagram. Instagram, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we and we love these animals just as much as you do. And it's yeah. really hard to explain to those people. Well, if you love it so much, why are you killing it? You know, um, it's just hard to explain to those people. And I don't really get into the food deal because I can go buy hamburger meat at the grocery store. Like I don't, I, I'm not going to starve to death if I don't go kill an elk or a deer. But I choose to hunt for my food. Mm-hmm. and that's my right and I can choose to hunt for it and I don't take more than I need and a lot of times there's conservation efforts that have to be formed I mean obviously there's certain areas there's, there's um, game bag limit restrictions in areas for a reason there's a reason for that if, if the population was too dense then there wouldn't be hunting there at all right so you know, we regulate we regulate the amount of animals that are basically living in that area according to food source. That's how the biologist really does it. Does it? You know, they're looking at okay, how many how many animals, elk, deer, whitetail, can can survive on sustain themselves on this many acres, this food source, and that's how come a lot of places they give out thirty tags. Or they give out 20 tags or right. they give out eight tags because that's 
how many animals they've projected need to be taken from that area. Hopefully we're taking the mature animals, which comes back to the scoring thing. So, you know, you get into all this scoring thing about, you know, 160 inch deer, 120 inch deer, whatever it is. Um, my goal now as a hunter is I just want to shoot a mature animal. Like I want, I want, I want to take the older animal off the herd. That's that's my goal. Yep. Like I want, and I don't care if he's. It's like I shot a, a really big white eight point in Kansas a couple of years ago, um, and it's it's on a film on the Badlands Channel, and he scored nothing, man. That deer was six and a half years old. <laughs> yep. Like he's evaded a lot of other hunters. Yes. And, yep. Yes, and it, and it had nothing to do with his genetics. I wasn't trying to take his genetics out of the herd. I could care less. He was just a huge mature buck, and I was like, "Man, that is a big old buck," and that's exactly what I'm looking for to take out. You know. Um, so, talking to the to the to the anti hunters, I don't really talk to the anti hunters. Yep. I talk to the people that are middle of the road, and. When I talk to them, I just explain to them, you know, about conservation efforts and about the fact that we all love these animals just as much as you do, probably more. Yeah. Um, for, for folks that want to wanna follow along with, with your adventures, uh, where, where can they find you on social media? So, best place to find me is Instagram. So, my Instagram page is, is Tim Inslee. So, it's Tim underscore Inslee. So, you can find me on Tim Inslee on Instagram. And if you want to watch any of the films or anything we've done, the majority of them are up on Badlands on their YouTube channel. So you okay. go to Badlands Packs on YouTube and go to Playlist and go to uh, Live in the Badlands Signature Series, Live in the Brand. There's probably 25 or 26 films on there. And also we have about five films that are part of the Badlands Film Festival. Okay. And you do um, an Instagram live series as well yeah. with, with Badlands. Uh, how can they find you there? Is that Badlands it's on Instagram? Badlands on Instagram. Every Wednesday night we go live on, on Badlands for an hour with a different guest. Um, we just did Willie Schmidt this last Wednesday. Jason Matzinger was the Wednesday before that. Next Wednesday is Tim Burnett, Solo Hunter. Yep. And uh, we've got some really cool sponsors involved in that. We're actually giving away a bow from G5 and Prime. Nice. Uh, coming up pretty quick. G5 and, based in Michigan, by the way. Memphis, yeah, Michigan. That's right. Yep. And um, so, yeah, it's been really cool. Just It's, it's basically like a it's basically like a one-hour podcast on Instagram. You just you just click and join us, and, uh, and you'll get to hear us talk about everything you can imagine. That's great. Um, give uh, Tim a follow. Uh, Tim, thanks so so much for taking the time to, to chat with me with the National Wildlife Federation Outdoors Podcast. The National Wildlife Federation Outdoors Podcast, as always, is supported by uh, Rep Your Water, who helps us with our efforts to stop Asian carp from getting into the Great Lakes. Um, help that we greatly appreciate. Tim, uh, thanks, as always, for uh, riding for the brand. Yeah. And uh, this has been the National Wildlife Federation Outdoors Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Young Dyke.